We're looking today at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. And as you're turning there, let me just relay maybe some current events for you this morning. Some of you might have heard uh, recently in October that William Shatner, the famous Star Trek actor who played James T. Kirk, he actually went into space for the first time. Did y'all hear about this? If not, you heard it here first. He actually helped out with this mission as part of a, a team with Jeff Bezos's company, Blue Origin. And so he went with a team of three other people, shot into space. And Shatner, at the time of this flight, was 90 years old when he went up to space. He's now the oldest man to ever go into space. And you might say that he had to boldly go where no one has gone before. Or you might say he had to oldly go where no one has gone before. I'm sorry. From what I read about Shatner and his experiences, he was really emotional about the trip, even as he was coming back to Earth. And as he came back, he started to speak out about the fragileness of our planet and our need to protect it. And I, I agree with Shatner about the fragileness of our planet, but probably not in the way that he meant that statement. This is a fragile world. We are a fragile people who populate it. If, we, if we've learned anything in 2020 and 2021, it's that we are a fragile people. We are not as strong as we think we are. Isn't that true? So I agree with him and you know, for Christians who believe the Bible, there's a perfectly clear reason for this fragility that we see. It's called Genesis 3. It's called the fall. And if you're not familiar with Genesis 3, here's a quick review of that passage. God created a perfect world, and he put a perfect representation of himself in the world. Man, man and woman, Adam and Eve, God created them in his image, and they had everything they needed. They had everything, everything in a garden of perfection, and God gave them one prohibition. He said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve defied God's prohibition, and they fell into sin, and they plunged our entire world into brokenness and fallenness and fragileness, and that has created this world full of injustice and sinfulness and death and disease and despair. That's not all that this world consists of. But that's part of the world that we live in right now. And that's the world that Solomon writes about in Ecclesiastes. Solomon knows all about this. He's studied our world. He knows about the sinfulness of our world. He knows that this is a Genesis 3 world. He won't let you forget it in this book, and he won't let you downplay it. You've got to reckon with the world as it is, not as how you want it to be. And so here's what Solomon does. In this passage today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29, here's your outline for today. Solomon's going to give us four evidences of fallenness and brokenness in our world, okay? Four evidences of Genesis 3 in our world. 
Write these down, church. Here's the first. A lack of fairness. There is a lack of fairness in our world. There is an inequity in our world that is verifiable. And here's how Solomon points it out. He says in verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. The word for vain here in verse 15 is the Hebrew hevel. And that should be a familiar word to you by now. Hevel, it means vaporous or smoke-like. And literally what Solomon says in this first sentence is, I have seen everything in the days of my hevel. In other words, I've seen everything in my short-lived, vapor-like existence. I've seen it all. And here's what I've seen. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Have you ever seen that before, Harvesticator? Do the good sometimes die young? Yes, they do. Do wicked people sometimes live long, prosperous lives? Yes, they do. I've got a perfect example for you. His name is Aaron Burr. He shot and killed one of the founding fathers of our nation, Alexander Hamilton. He shot and killed him. Aaron Burr did this while he was serving as the vice president of the United States. It's just a shocking piece of history. And despite his transgression, despite the fact that he even had a warrant out for his arrest at some point as the vice president, he lived a long life. He lived till age 80. He lived another 32 years after killing Alexander Hamilton. I'll give you another example from American history. Benedict Arnold, the great traitor to the American Revolution. He should have been hanged in 1780. But he escaped after spying for the British, and he lived another 21 years after that. He even outlived George Washington, dying in peace in London, England. Benedict Arnold. I said last week, you know, why do... Why do good pastors like Jonathan Edwards and Robert Murray McShane, why do they die early? Jonathan Edwards died of a smallpox vaccine that went wrong. Why do men like that die early and other pastors, bad pastors, theologically compromised pastors like Harry Emerson Fosdick lived into his 90s? I don't know. Why did, why did Diedrich Bonhoeffer die at age 39? Put to death by Nazis. I used to think that was really old, 30 now. Now at 39, now I think it's, it's really young. Why did God let that happen? Why do good leaders like Abraham Lincoln and JFK die in office and other bad leaders, dictators like Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong live into their 70s and 80s? I was reading yesterday, Joseph Stalin, he actually ruled over Russia and what later became the USSR. He, he ruled for 30 years. 30 years. He ruled. Do you know how many millions of people died under Stalin's rule because of his whims? Why? Why do good leaders die young sometimes and bad leaders like Stalin progress in their wickedness or prolong their life even in evil doing? Because 718, Ecclesiastes 7, sorry, 15, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man, Stalin, who prolongs his life, and his evil doing. Now we need to be careful here because one of the truisms of, of Proverbs is that all things being equal, a righteous man is going to live longer than an unrighteous man. They're going to be healthier. So, I mean, just, you know, I'm, please don't come away from the sermon this morning thinking, 
well, what, you know, what was the sermon about? Well, Pastor Tony said we should be wicked like Stalin and we could live longer. I'm not saying that. In fact, Proverbs would say as a truism that the opposite is true. You're going to live longer if you're not wicked. Proverbs 10, 27 says this. You can read this on the screen. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. That's a generalization, all right? That's a truism. Proverbs 16, 31 says this. Gray hair is a crown of glory. Can I get an amen? Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gain in a righteous life. In other words, if you live a righteous life, you're going to live longer, all things being equal, as a truism. But that doesn't always follow through. And Solomon wrote those Proverbs as a young man. Now as an older man, he's saying, there, yes, those are truisms, but there are these things called anomalies in our world. I've studied it out and I found it. Sometimes the good do die young. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. Life isn't ruled by karma. There's an indeterminacy in this, and we can't get to the bottom of it, even those of us who have great wisdom like Solomon. And it's evidence, here's what I'm getting at, it's evidence of a Genesis 3 world, a fallen world that we live in. The great biblical example of this, even in the Old Testament, is is Naboth and King Ahab. If you remember King Ahab, he wanted Naboth's vineyard, and Naboth wouldn't give it to him because it was part of his family's inheritance. Naboth was a good, righteous man, and Ahab was, was sullen because of it. And his wicked wife, Jezebel, they were both wicked, they decided, well, let's put him to death and let's just take his vineyard, and they did. So a good man died early. A righteous man, Naboth, died, and Jezebel and Ahab went on to reign for many more years after that. Sometimes this happens, and it, just, it doesn't just play out in matters of life and death. Sometimes the bad guy gets the job promotion, right? I mean, you don't have to amen that. We all know that's true. Sometimes the good guy gets passed over for the promotion. That happens in our world. Johnny Christian doesn't always score the touchdown. And pagan Paul doesn't always fumble the football. I wish it was that way. You know, the older I get, I, I mean, I, I root for football players who are Christians. I used to root for the Denver Broncos. I, I still do. But I, I care more about those players who have a vibrant Christian testimony. People like Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz la- lost last week to Tom Brady. You know, it's not always the Christians that win. Sometimes they lose. Tom Brady has seven Super Bowls. Does he need more wins? Come on now, quit. It's a Genesis 3 world out there, and life isn't always fair, even for Christians. Here's some more evidence of Genesis 3 in our world. Write this down as number two. There is a propensity towards sin, right? There's a propensity towards sin in our own hearts. Isn't there now? Solomon says in verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not, take, do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now this is, this is a tricky passage, and we need to be careful how we interpret this. Otherwise, we might end up in a place of lukewarmness. And just so you know, Jesus hates lukewarmness. 
He says in the book of Revelation to the church in Laodicea, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, so because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. I don't want Jesus to spit me out of his mouth. I don't want to be lukewarm. So we don't want to make that mistake here with this passage. The idea, let's be clear, the idea behind verse 16 is not that we should be somewhat sinful. Let's just be a little sinful. We don't want to be too righteous. It's, let's be somewhat ignorant. We don't want to be too wise, you know. It's not, it's not that. It's that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. That's what Solomon is saying here. We shouldn't think too highly of our own righteousness and our own wisdom because, verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You need to be humble, church. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So verse 16 is about humility. Verse 17 is about holiness. Be humble, be holy. And then verse 18 is about how to balance the two in the fear of the Lord. Okay? So let's take another run at this. Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Why should you destroy yourself by your overestimation of yourself? Why ruin yourself by self-deception? You're a sinner. You need to reckon with that. You're a sinner. Admit it and deal with it. That's necessary for your salvation, actually, to admit your sin before the Lord. You might say, okay, Pastor Tony, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. So should I just sin like crazy, like an unbeliever? You know, should I just go nuts, release my inhibitions, just sin as much as I can? No, not so fast. Look at verse 17. Be not overly wicked, says Solomon. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Why should you die before your time? Let me get really practical with you as we apply verse 17. Really practical. Maybe uncomfortably practical. Everyone listening? Don't smoke pot and get hooked on mind-altering drugs. It's legal, Pastor Tony. Who cares? There's lots of crazy stuff that's legal. Don't get hooked on meth, young people. Don't get hooked on prescription drugs. Why die before it's your time? Why do something foolish like that? Don't get hooked on drinking too much. My grandfather... He drank so much when I was a kid that he actually cut off circulation to his leg and they had to cut his leg off. It became gangrenous. So my most formative memories of him as a little boy was him hobbling around on one leg. They had to cut off one leg because he drank too much. He just kept on drinking and he drank himself to death. Have moderation, people. Why die before your time? Can I give you some more advice? Can I get a little more practical? Anybody squirming? Here's some more advice. Don't sleep around. Don't commit adultery. Don't get hooked on pornography. Don't cheat on your taxes and then you're up at night with anxiety because you're waiting for the tax man to come knocking at your door. Why die early? Because you're so full of so much anxiety. Here, here's what I'm getting at, okay? Hear me on this. Life is hard enough as it is, isn't it? You don't need to make it harder on yourself. 
by wickedness that leads to an early death. It is good, verse 18, that you should take hold of this, verse 16. Don't think too highly of yourself. And from that, withhold not your hand, verse 17. Be holy, be humble, be holy. Take hold of both of these, is what he's saying. For the one who fears God does these things and shall come out from both of them. The fear of the Lord will keep you from being overly self-righteous and being overly foolish. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. In other words, you know, to think yourself wise, verse 16, isn't that valuable. To think of yourself as really wise, that's not valuable. It actually makes you vulnerable. You think yourself wiser than, you know, you've got a bunch of degrees hanging on the wall. You think because of that, you know, you're, you're not susceptible to sin or to problems. That's naive. That's fake wisdom. So to actually be wise, on the other hand, instead of just thinking yourself wise, that's incredibly valuable, is what Solomon says here in verse 19. It gives you more strength than 10 rulers in a city. Give me that, Lord. Give me real wisdom. Not thinking I'm wise, but actually give me wisdom. In verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does, who does good and never sins. To think yourself perfectly righteous doesn't just make you vulnerable, like thinking yourself too wise. To think yourself too righteous it doesn't make you just vulnerable. It makes you delusional. Because Solomon says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There is not a good man on earth who does good and never sins. Who does that sound like? What book of the Bible does that sound like? That sounds like the Apostle Paul. That sounds like Romans, doesn't it? Tell me if you've heard this before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that ring a bell? And, and you might think, well, you know, Paul just made that up out of whole cloth. No, he was reading those things out of the Bible. Solomon affirmed these things. Solomon writes essentially the same thing here. We are all sin-stained people. We are. There is nobody who stands uncondemned as a sinless person before the Lord. Anybody want to claim that before the Lord? Anybody want to say, incorrect, Pastor Tony. You haven't seen me yet. Listen, this is a truth from the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're banking on your good deeds and your sinlessness to earn favor with God, you're in for a rude awakening in eternity. You are. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. We are holy unholy before the Lord. And thankfully, God has provided a way for us to be made holy. God has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sinfulness. And here's, here's the marvel of the New Testament. It actually involves a righteous man who never sinned. More on that in a second. Speaking of propensity to sin, look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Woo. That's good wisdom. Why? Verse 22, because your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Woo. Charles Spurgeon, when he was teaching future pastors, he used to tell them, 
You need to have one blind eye and one deaf ear as you minister to people. You know, just kind of one blind eye, one deaf ear. There's a great moment in, in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Don Trader where one of the protagonists, her name is Lucy, she gets this book of magical incantations. And one of the spells in that book allows her to hear everything that her friends are saying about her. So she says, well, that sounds interesting. So she casts this spell. And all of a sudden, she hears everything her friend says. And lo and behold, her friends aren't always saying nice things about her. And it actually destroys some of her friendships with other people. Sometimes it's better not to know everything your friends are saying about you. Sometimes it's better to turn a deaf ear to the gossip out there, to turn off your Twitter feed, stop listening to what people are saying to you. That's essentially what Solomon is warning us about here. Blaise Pascal, he said once, if, if all men knew what each said of the other, there would only be four friends left in the world. And I think that's true. And, and here's what's interesting about this verse. Here's Solomon. He was just talking about the universality of human sinfulness. And, and this feels like kind of a non sequitur. You know, all of a sudden he's talking about not listening to your servant cursing you. And you're like, what? What is, how does that connect before? Here's the idea that Solomon's getting at. He's trying to show you how sneaky your own propensity to sin is. You know, we all get hot and bothered when we hear somebody say something about, bad about us and we hear some gossip and somebody said something, we're like, man, we punish that person. We're angry at that person. We go after that person. But then the tables are turned and that's what Solomon does here and we realize, you know, we've done the same thing to other people. Haven't we now? You know, I told you earlier that Jesus got mad about lukewarmness. There's another thing that makes Jesus really angry. It's a little thing we call hypocrisy. Doing something, being angry at somebody else for doing something, and then we do it ourselves. That's what Solomon is getting at here. If you remember what the prophet Nathan said to David after David was indignant, because Nathan told him this story about a rich man who had all of these sheep, and he went to his servant and he took the one lamb that this family had, and he slaughtered that lamb to have a feast, this rich man did. And David was so indignant. He wanted to kill this guy just for his sheep. Remember what Nathan told David? You are that man. You have all of these wives. You're the king of Israel. And you went and took one of your loyal servants, his only wife, Bathsheba. And to David's credit, I mean, he repented, and we should too. And there's two pieces of advice here. Let, let's get practical again. Here's the first. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't condemn another person for something you're doing yourself. And then I think secondly, there's, there's an implication here to not listen too carefully to negative criticism about you. Turn your Twitter feed off sometimes. Sometimes you got to let things go. And just brush it off. I quoted that verse to you last week. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. How's that going for you? Ignoring insults? I heard this last week about a wise man who he responded to criticism 
people were criticizing him. And he responded to that criticism by saying, well, you know, that person didn't insult me at all. In fact, he was talking about another man, the man he thought I was. That's not really me. Write this down as number three. Here's another third piece, third piece of evidence for Genesis 3 world. Brace yourself for this. Sexual temptation. Sexual temptation. Solomon says in verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Okay, you might say, well, where are you going with this, Solomon? What's this all about? Keep reading. Verse 24, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? That's true. Wisdom is hard to find, and the deep things of God are beyond finding out. But still, you might ask, okay, where are we going with this, Solomon? What are you talking about? Keep reading. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. I tried to understand everything, says Solomon. I tried to understand even the depths of human folly. Why are humans the way that they are? Why do they do dumb stuff sometimes? I tried to sniff this out and I found that there is a foolishness that is a kind of madness that is part of humanity. That's what he's saying here. And again, you might say, okay, Solomon, but where are we going with this? Is this just you philosophizing about human folly? Why are you telling us this? Keep reading. Look at verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. Okay, this is where he's going. What is it? The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Okay, so now we know what Solomon is getting at. He's warning us about the dangers of sexual sin because there is a kind of madness to it you know a man can seem perfectly strong perfectly sane perfectly wise and astute and above reproach but then all of a sudden his heart is taken by a forbidden woman a temptress a prostitute an adulterer and all of a sudden he is captured like a bird in a fowler's snare he is caught like a stag Caught by an archer's arrow. This whole passage, it actually reminds me of Proverbs chapter 7. There's a lot of corollaries here in terms of language and imagery. And I, I preach Proverbs 7. It's one of the saddest passages in the Bible. And Proverbs 7 tells about this naive young man who is seduced by an adulteress. An adulteress who's dressed like a prostitute and who's wily of heart and she seizes him and she seduces him and she persuades him to sin with her smooth talk. And then Solomon says this, this is the conclusion of, a matter, of the matter. All at once he follows her, the adulteress, as an ox goes to slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
One of the saddest passages in the Bible. A man duped into sin. Can I go back to something I said earlier? Harvesticator. If you are a married man listening in this room, do not commit adultery on your spouse. Don't sin against her. Don't bring that pain upon your family. I've seen it. And it's not pretty. Don't get hooked on porn, men. Life is hard enough as it is. It's hard enough as it is. Don't make it worse. Don't destroy your life by chasing a forbidden woman. And can I say this to the ladies of Harvest Decatur as well, married women out there? Don't be foolish. Don't chase adultery. Don't read Fifty Shades of Grey. If you have that book on your shelf, go home this afternoon and burn it. It's trash. I've seen adultery wreck marriages. I've seen adultery wreck families and wreck kids. I've seen adultery wreck churches. Life's hard enough as it is. There's no reason to bring more pain on yourself. And let me say this too. I talk to married men and women. If you're single, if you're a single man, if you're a single woman, be faithful to the Lord and be faithful to your future spouse. Don't sleep around. Don't treat dating like, you know, you're going on a wine tasting tour. Just sampling everything. That's not wise. At the end of Proverbs 7, Solomon says this. You can read this on the screen. He says, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her past. For many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Don't waste your youthly vigor on adultery and sin. Find a spouse, get married. That's what he advises. And you know, that's kind of rich coming from Solomon. It really is. He said that as a young man in Proverbs. And that was before he didn't follow his own advice. And married 700 women, foreign wives, who led his heart astray to Sheol. And then you kind of wonder, as you're reading this, as you're reading Ecclesiastes, is he saying now, as an old man, after writing Proverbs 7, as a young man, now he's saying, don't make the mistake I made. I had great wisdom, but it wasn't enough to keep me from my sexual appetites. And my thirst for power with all of these Marriages to foreign women. Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, he who pleases God escapes her. Some of you this morning, and I want to be sensitive to this, you might say, Pastor Tony, I, whew, I've made mistakes in this area. Like Solomon, like King David, I've made mistakes. And if, that was, if that's the case this morning, if that's current, 
right now, then let me encourage you to be like King David and do what King David did. Repent and confess your sins before the Lord and receive his forgiveness. And here's the good news. The good news is that your sins, even your sexual sins, can be forgiven. That doesn't mean that the temporary causes of your sin will be removed. David still had to deal with the temporary causes of his sin. You can read all about that. But the eternal consequences of your sin can be removed. You can be forgiven. I've said this before. I think it bears repeating. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And only sinners qualify for salvation. You might say, I'm a sinner, Pastor Tony. Good, you qualify. Me too. And you can be forgiven. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Isn't that good? Look, the Lord can save you from sexual sin, from all sin. He's in the business of saving us. He who pleases God resists sexual sin, and when we fail, God gives us his grace. And finally, you can write this down as number four. Here's a final piece of evidence for a Genesis 3 world. One more thing. It's a little old thing we like to call total depravity. Some of you might say it's baby dedication day, Pastor Tony. How dare you? <laughs> total depravity, really? Well, brace yourself. This passage is about to get really bleak. But you need to know, and your kids need to know this too, by the way. Solomon says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. Solomon's still searching. He's still searching, still trying to figure out the scheme of things. How this life all comes together. Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Verse 28. But I did find one thing. One man among a thousand I found who was good. But a woman among these I have not found. That's what he's saying here. Now listen, before you get angry about that statement, I just want you to know that says more about Solomon than it does say about women. Maybe if he didn't marry 700 women who were foreign and have 300 concubines, he could find one in a thousand women that was good. But he didn't do that. He didn't live his life that way. And, and there's a bigger principle at work here. He's not just being cynical about women. Solomon is not just a misogynist. He's a misanthrope. He doesn't think anybody's good. He only found one of a thousand men who were good. He's saying that of the men and women he knew, the men were one-tenth of one percent more likely to be good than the women he knew. And even that is modified in the last verse. Because look what he says in verse 29. See, this alone I found. God made man upright. You hear the echo to Genesis? Remember the Garden of Eden? God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. 
God made man upright. God made man perfect. God made man and woman in his image. He put them in the Garden of Eden. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He, he spent time with them. Everything was literally perfect, and man had everything, and he threw it all away. The word man here in verse 29 is the Hebrew Adam or Adam. God made Adam upright. That's what we call original righteousness in the Garden of Eden. God made Adam perfect, and Adam threw it all away because he went after the forbidden fruit, and he passed down all of this sinfulness, this inherited sin to all of his offspring, you and I, who are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. It's what theologians refer to as original sin. We have sin in us even as we come into this world, even before we sin, we have sin in us. And we can't stop it in our own power. If you don't believe me, if you don't think that's true, well, that's because you don't have kids. <laughs> or you're naive even about your own propensity to sin. It's in us, this original sin. And what Solomon is saying is that all men and women are depraved. He's seen it. We're all sinners. And that's because we're the offspring of Adam and Eve. There's a moment in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian where the, the Christ figure, figure Aslan is talking to Prince Caspian. And he says this, he says, To come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. What he's saying there is to come from Adam and Eve, you're made in God's image. I mean, that's, that's enough to raise the head of the poorest beggar. We're all made in the image of God. Hallelujah. But there's shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Why is there shame? Why is there guilt? Because we inherited sin from Lord Adam and Lady Eve. We have sin in our hearts, even from birth. It's called original sin. You might say to that boy, Pastor Tony, thanks for a great message today. Thanks for getting us all depressed on baby dedication day. Now I'm going to go home and cry myself to sleep. Is there any hope for us, Pastor Tony? Sinners like us? Is there any hope for us? Listen, I've been preaching the mess, same message for 14 years, so I'm going to hammer this nail again. I know this is bad news, what I'm sharing with you today. Total depravity, original sin, we are all sinners. You got to know the bad news in order to get to the good news. Have I said that before? Maybe a hundred times, haven't I? You got to know the bad news. And, and I'll just tell you, the bad news is bad. It's worse than you think. You are a sinner. We are the offspring of Adam and Eve. We have an inherited sinfulness from him. Genesis 3 makes that clear. Romans 5 makes that incontrovertible. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're doomed. 
That's the bad news. Now what's the good news? Can I interest you in some good news? The good news is that there's a second Adam. The good news is that there is a man who lived a perfect life, who was sinless, who was righteous through and through. And that one good man who did not come from the seed of Adam, he was born of a virgin. We sing about it at Christmas time. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have original sin. That one good man died a cruel death on a brutal cross so that your sin and my sin might be paid for. That's the good news, Harvest Decatur. You got to get the bad news first in order to get to the good news. And the good news is this. Your total depravity can be totally rectified by faith in Christ and you can experience new life in Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Amen. Y'all know that, don't you? If you don't, today can be a day of salvation for you. You embrace by faith what Christ has done. You admit your sinfulness before a holy God. I'm a sinner, Lord. Save me. I believe in Jesus' death. I believe in his resurrection. You can be saved by grace. You can be saved by faith and by Christ. I'll close with this. Worship team, y'all go ahead and come up. Be ready for the final song. So the church father, Augustine, said something about this a long time ago. These are old words. But these are good words. Here's what he said. He said, no bad person can make a good one. No bad person can make a good one. How can a bad man make himself good? The only one who can make a good person out of a bad one is the one who is always good. Y'all still with me? Augustine says, we were created good by the good God, seeing that God made man upright. See the echo there to Ecclesiastes 7? But by our own decision, we became bad. We were able to change from good to bad, and we shall be able to change from bad to good. But it is only the one who is always good that can change bad to good. Did y'all get all that? Let's just focus on that last sentence. Who's the one who is always good who can change bad to good? What is the name that is above every name? Who's the only one who is worthy of our praise? Worthy of our worship? Worthy of our very lives? Lord Jesus, we give you worship. We give you praise this morning. Let's stand. Let's be ready to sing. Lord, we love you. We worship you. You are the sinless one. You are the one who saved our souls. You are the one that came to earth as a baby and took on human flesh and died a brutal death for us. We praise you, Lord. 
We give our lives to you. We build our lives on the truth of your grace, the truth of your mercy, what you did for us. Receive our worship, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.